Welcome to another Critique podcast. As our young specialty gains maturity and experience, the lingering impact of critical illness on patients and their family is becoming apparent. Dr Christina Jones has over 25 years of experience in programs designed to address these issues, and she joins me from Whiston Hospital in the UK for today's podcast. I began by asking her how she became involved in this area. I started off actually not as um, a nurse. I, I was a biochemist and then didn't want to work in a laboratory, so retrained as a nurse and did intensive care as a clinical nurse. And then I saw this job advertised to, to set up a follow-up service for intensive care patients. And I was working at that point in cardiothoracics. And really it was conveyor belt medicine. They came in, they went out, and um, if they didn't sort of come off the, the ventilator the next day, they didn't quite know what to do with them. So it appealed to me to know what happened to patients after they'd been in intensive care. So in 1990, I founded uh, a clinic for intensive care patients. And at that point, we had no idea what we were looking for. Okay. Um, and over the years, we gradually built it up. Were there, um, were there ICU clinics around at that time or for you to model on? Or were you really um, setting a trend uh, at that point? Yeah, no, starting from scratch, really. So um, really sort of looking around for tools to, to assess the psychological side and um, Professor Griffiths, who I work with, his background was in muscle physiology, so he was very interested in the in the physical recovery, but yeah. really um, there was nothing on the psychological side. So, so I very much uh, found that that was an area that I could I could explore. So you've you've probably got as much experience with the ICU. Uh, outpatient clinic as anybody. Um, what's your perspective on how that concept operates? I think when we started, um, it was very much about learning what was happening to patients. It has changed over the years now. It's really become um, the final step in the process. So we see patients at about two to three months after they've left intensive care. And now because they have the rehabilitation package and they may have had a diary, then it's the end point um, and they're ready to move on. Um, and occasionally we need to refer people on to, um, to physiotherapy, but the vast majority of patients are ready really to just get on with getting better. Christina, what are the features of the, the, the problems that intensive care patients suffer in their recovery from intensive care? And there's a number of different features. Um, obviously, if they've got significant muscle wasting, then they, they really sort of struggle physically to get back to normal. And depending on their age, if they're under the age of 50, you can sort of say a week for each day they're in intensive care to get better. If they're over the age of 50, it can be up to two weeks per day in intensive care to get better. So if you have a significant length of stay, you've really got an uphill battle to rebuild that muscle afterwards. If you then add on the percentage of patients who will have some sort of critical illness neuropathy or polyneuropathy, then they've really got a long road to recovery physically. 
then it may be also that they will have elements of um, cognitive impairments that may, um, may be quite mild, they may just find it difficult to remember appointments and things, be a bit more absent-minded, or it can be quite profound uh, and really impinge on their everyday life. And then finally, there's the psychological recovery. And a particular feature of that in a significant percentage of patients is post-traumatic stress disorder. We, we tend to focus on the physical elements of, um, of intensive care quite substantially. Are, are, there, um, are there particular impediments that, um, that you see to their recovery, things like cardiopulmonary um, issues and so on? I think really, on the whole, unless um, they've got pre-existing problems or if you've got a, a patient who had really severe um, ARDS, and has significant pulmonary issues, that, that it is just deconditioning and really sort of being motivated enough to do enough exercise to rebuild muscle that um, it is a real challenge for the, for the average ICU patient. For many of us, one of the difficulties is that we don't see these patients once they leave the walls of intensive care, so it's difficult to get an appreciation for how debilitating this is. What do people talk to you about and, and how do they describe their lives when they return to see you? I think one of the, 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 the biggest things certainly that we, we came to understand fairly quickly was because they don't often have a memory for the, the factual thing about being in intensive care, then they don't have an explanation for why they feel as, as weak as they do. And therefore, they can very easily spiral into depression because they think, oh, I must still be very, very ill and um, I'm not going to get better. So then it becomes this spiral of negative thoughts. And I think one of the, the, the biggest things about helping people to get better is just to fill in that gap and say how ill they've been, although it sounds quite cruel to do that. It gives them then a sense of, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to take a while to get better. I'm going to, it, it, you know, it is going to be difficult climbing stairs or coming downstairs. It is going to be difficult getting out of the bath. So it then makes sense to them um, why they feel the way that they do. In real terms, what are the sorts of things that they have trouble with in their day-to-day lives? You mentioned getting out of the bath and, and those sorts of things. What about return to employment and, and social issues? Are they major factors? Uh, they, they definitely can, can be, and that's actually the interplay with both um, the, the physical side and the psychological, and in some cases, cognitive side. That depending on what job they have, if it's a very physical job, then they're going to take a while to get back to a point where they can do it. But if it's a very mental job, then the, if they have something like post-traumatic stress disorder, they're going to have problems with, with um, concentrating. And if they have cognitive issues, then they're going to have, again, problems with their memory and remembering um, aspects of their job. So there can be a number of different issues that impact on, on going back to work. Um, for some people, if they've got real sort of cognitive deficits, it's simply things like handling their finances, um, and if they're very, very absent-minded, I, I, I know one lad got banned from 
putting the kettle on to make a cup of tea because he kept burning the kettle out. He kept. He remembered he had to make a cup of tea, he just forgot to put the water in in the first place in the kettle and then turned it on. So um, so he burnt about three kettles uh, out completely before his dad decided to, to knock it on the head and make his own cup of tea. So um, it can be a real mixture of different things. You mentioned there um, the impact on family. Do you, do you deal much with families in your clinics? We, we always make the invitation open for the family to come as well because their, their, their knowledge and, and understanding and memory of the intensive care stay is very different from the patients. They've sat every day at the bedside and if you don't engage them in the rehabilitation process, they can actually sort of uh, really sort of damage the, 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 the exercise side of it because they're being overprotective. So you have to share the information between the two uh, for them to understand why the patient is being asked to do these exercises to get stronger. Then they know that it's safe for the patient to do them and they're not going to damage themselves in any way. So bringing them to the clinic, engaging them when you, when you see them on the wards, I think is very important. Um, you mentioned post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and those sorts of things. That clearly has a profound impact. What sort of numbers? How common is this sort of disturbance for survivors of RCD? Around 10 to 13% of patients will have the full diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. There'll be another 10% who have some aspects of it, which will still have an impact on their functioning. Um, and at its worst, it can be very debilitating. Um, and I would say probably you're looking at about, um, about 5% of patients who really find it very difficult to move on from being in intensive care uh, because of post-traumatic stress disorder. With the anxiety and depression, it's, um, it's probably lesser amounts. They will, they will have aspects of it, but the full-blown um, picture that means that they don't get on with their lives is, is not so significant. Many people will be wondering how we could possibly cope with that many people from intensive care, but it doesn't appear that it's everybody who suffers these, these issues, is it? Is there a... Uh, an awareness of the risk factors for people who will suffer these long-term consequences? Uh, as far as the psychological ones, um, there's quite good research that suggests that things like depth of sedation, uh, being physically restrained for that matter, um, in those units that do use physical restraints, um, and also things about the patient themselves. So if they have a previous history of psychological problems, they're much more likely to develop further psychological problems after being in intensive care. On the cognitive side, the presence of delirium uh, while a patient in intensive care is significantly associated with having cognitive deficits afterwards. So I think it's really important that we, we need to look at that those issues while patients are, are actually sick. And um, on the physical side, it is the, the, the sheer length of their intensive care stay. The longer they stay, the more muscle they, that they lose. And then the sicker they are, the more muscle they lose. So uh, that's, that's really a no-brainer. It's quite easy to see that.
obviously knowing about this and doing something about it are two different things. The, the audience listening to this podcast will largely be based in intensive care. What are the sorts of things that intensive care staff can do to uh, mitigate the risks of, um, of these sorts of things happening? I think um, the movement for, for early mobilisation and really sort of getting people moving while they're still on the ventilator, I think is really important in preserving as much muscle mass as possible. And um, I think the other aspect of that, if you get people moving, they're much less likely to develop delirium. So you're really sort of addressing both the physical and the cognitive side. But looking at the kind of medications that you're using for sedation um, to try and reduce the, 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 the development of delirium is important. And also, if you're going to sedate people, then you need to think very carefully about things like sedation breaks uh, and trying to keep people as lightly sedated as clinically feasible to reduce the impact on their psychological issues afterwards. But I think regardless of what we do in intensive care, there will always be a percentage of people that will need some help afterwards. And we can't put all our eggs in one basket. We do have to actually try to address the issues afterwards. The concept of the ICU diary uh, has been raised and uh, is an attempt to fill in some of the blanks for patients who've been in intensive care. Can you tell me about the experiences with that? Yes, I mean, we adopted it from the model used in Sweden. Um, so it's a, it's a daily account by both the staff and the relatives can write as well, and they're encouraged to write about what goes on at home um, and take photographs at significant points in the patient's stay, so at the start, and then if something like they have a tracheostomy, then you'll take a photograph. And um, it's given to the patient at a point after they're leaving ICU that they feel comfortable with, and then... Um, I usually go through the diary with the patient so they know exactly um, what's in it and understand it completely. Um, so we do try to write in a way that is easy for the patient to understand and if we have any medical terms, we'll qualify them. And, and really because we were seeing an impact of these diaries on patients, we, we ran a big um, multinational study that looked at the impact on post-traumatic stress disorder and we found that it reduced um, the incidence from 13% in the controls down to 5% in the patients that got the diary. So it's really been something that I think has had a major impact on our patients. The other intervention that really impressed me in, in reading up for this podcast was the, the rehabilitation manual that you developed. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that, that was my PhD work, and um, I, I knew that we, we have fairly poor provision here for physiotherapy after the patient has left intensive care. So it was trying to think, how can we do something that's relatively simple, that will produce a six-week program, that patients can follow themselves with the help of their relatives, so I used the model used by cardiac rehabilitation, um, which is which is a six-week program, um, and used their structure. 
and then just added into it everything that patients had told us in clinic and um, just in chatting over the over the years before we, uh, it was developed, and and tried to put some common sense advice in. And then at the back was a detailed um, exercise program, which I developed with one of our senior physios, and. Um, it has a mixture of exercises in because obviously you'll get some quite young fit patients who need more in-depth exercises and some older, um, maybe patients with some sort of chronic illness who need simpler exercises. And it covers um, all the major muscle groups in the body so that they can, they can concentrate on areas that they feel um, need the most work. And um, it was tested in three intensive care units and, and showed to have um, an accelerating effect on physical recovery. What do patients and, uh, and their families say about that? How do they, um, how do they find the rehabilitation then? Um, I think um, one of the, the things, as I said earlier, is it's getting the patient and the family to, to agree on the, on the way that, that patients can exercise. And one of the things it uses is the Borg exertion scale so that a family member can look at that and think, okay, they're, they're exercising in that range that's safe. Uh, and so I can encourage them in doing that. And if you get the relative on board and supporting that, then it's almost certain that the patient will, will exercise because the relative will come along and say, hang on, have you done your exercises today? So you really get them supporting the whole process. So I think it's not just about the manual, it's also how you introduce it to the patient and their family that's important. Now you've been involved in the, uh, the ICU outpatient clinic um, uh, concept for, for 20 years or more. Can you tell me how that developed and, and how you've seen the concept developed over that time? Yes, I, I, I mean when we started we really didn't know what we were looking for. And so it was very much a case of, of, of talking to patients and their families about their experiences, trying to give advice where we could. But gradually what's happened is that things come in before the clinic now. So they have, they've had a diary, they've had the, the re rehabilitation package. So by the time they come to clinic now, it's, it's more an end of a process. They're ready to sort of say goodbye to the whole illness and, and turn a new leaf compared to when we started where they really it was like the beginning of the whole sort of recovery process um so in in many senses i think actually you could get by without the clinic um so long as you contacted patients to see how they were how they were doing and that there were no issues but um when we started you couldn't have because you had to understand what was going on. Uh, is the ICU outpatient clinic a common concept in the UK? There's probably about a third of intensive care units have some sort of follow-up service. Not all of them run clinics, some of them just um, contact the patients by phone to see how they're doing. Um, and, and a lot more people would like to be able to do it, but obviously funding is a major issue. Um, we got by on soft research funding for quite a few years because we built it into the research programs that we were doing. Um, and then eventually the hospital did take over funding for it. 
and now it's just seen as a routine part of, of intensive care, um, care to actually bring people back to a clinic. Just touching on that last point, I believe that you have a uh, drop-in service or a, an occasional contact service, is that correct? Well, we, we um, I, I, a long, long time ago, we actually had a support group and it was a perfect example how not to set up a support group because we started with a room in the hospital and patients, we eventually realised after six months, they didn't want to come back to the hospital. So we ended up meeting in um, the local pub on the corner um, outside the hospital. And then that's when we realised that actually patients were much more comfortable in that environment. And, and I, um, I ran that for five years until I started my PhD. And then recently in Milton Keynes, they started um, something called ICU Steps. And if you Google that, you will get their websites. And um, they, they developed a drop-in sort of idea that patients can just, uh, and their families for that matter, can just come to one of the groups and chat with other people over a cup of coffee and um, really sort of get a sense that they're not the only patient that's had these experiences. Uh, and also the, the relatives get some support from, from other relatives. Um, and we, we have a group every six months. It, it meets in one of the local village halls. And um, really the, the staff's role in it is to just be there to answer any medical questions. It's really the patients and their families that are doing the support. There is a core of, of patients that are really quite committed to coming to the group and, and helping people who are earlier on in their recovery to, to get over it. And, um, and that's very much the Milton Keynes model, is to, is to have this core of people who um, are committed to come almost all the time and, and talk to new patients coming in uh, about their experiences. Staff members that are associated with the acute care, do they get involved in the outpatient clinics as well? Because I'd imagine the feedback that they would get from that sort of exposure would be very productive. There, there is an open invitation that if anybody wants to come and sit in, if they have the time, they can come down. And the staff do on a regular basis um, drop in. And, and if there's a particular patient they've looked after, we can tell them while they're coming at you know, a particular time and they can come back and, um, and see them. But we also, at the, at the end of each appointment with each patient, we'll say to them, you know, do go back to the intensive care. Um, ring the buzzer, just say to the staff who you are, because obviously they won't recognise you. But um, it's not just for the patient to say goodbye, it's also to give the, the staff the understanding of, these are patients who survived and look how they're doing. So it, it gives the, 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 the um, nurses a real boost to see patients who are getting better. Um, so we do encourage that. Um, we have a lot of uh, nursing students do actually come and sit in, in the clinic, which I think is really important for the next generation coming into to working in intensive care. And then finally, what we do with we, we do like a feedback on the patients that we've seen in clinic. And if there's any particular issues that need to be addressed, then we'll go back and we'll talk to the to the staff about what we said in clinic with the patient's permission.
Um, so we do try to involve staff as much as possible. Um, so that, and the, I think there is a bigger understanding of the impact of critical illness um, on patients after they've left intensive care because of that, because they, they, they hear what, uh, what patients have said. Christina, the last concept I wanted to ask you about was that of the ICU liaison or follow-up service uh, while the patients are still in the acute hospital. Do you have much experience with that as a concept? We have an outreach team, um, so they visit the, the patients in the first few days after they've left intensive care, really for the, um, the role of, of making sure that they don't deteriorate physically and need readmission. But um, what I've done is actually novelled our service and they will actually look at the psychological side as well. They'll ask patients simple questions like, um, are they sleeping? Are they having any nightmares? Um, and they can then come back and, and say to me, well, maybe you need to go and see this patient as an urgent uh, referral because they're struggling with certain aspects. So, so it, it's quite useful to me to, to, uh, to have them because they see everybody and I can only see a percentage of the patients um, th that they will come back and feed to me what exactly is going on with the patient. Finally, where to next? Where would you like to see resources, research uh, invested into the future? I think um, really if you look at the cognitive recovery, there's very little research on how you would um, help patients who've got really significant memory problems. Um, and in some ways I think uh, I mean, we, we just give very common sense advice, like keeping a diary, um, because otherwise they tend to forget um, hospital appointments and things. Um, so, so being quite structured in the, the, the way they uh, record things. But, um, but as yet, we don't know. If we, if we reduce the incidence of delirium or address it early, does that make a difference to, to come to recovery? Those are questions that still haven't been been answered. And also, how is the impact of things like post-traumatic stress disorder? Are the cognitive problems that you see down to some of um, psychological issues or are they functional, um, simply damage to the brain from the, the severity of illness? Those have not been separated out. So I think the cognitive area is a really big sort of research area that, that still needs to be addressed. Christina Jones, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for joining us on the Critique Podcast today. If you like what you heard, why not head over to the website at www.crit-iq.com where you can find our entire series of podcasts along with online modules, videos, a journal club, a blog, and much more. Critique. Critical for life.